0: This is Undisciplined, Academic by Nature, Undisciplined in Practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. Say what? Today we're talking about something that I am really thinking about as it is the subject of my next manuscript and my work. And I am constantly thinking about this and trying to engage with people who have been, you know, in this arena for a while. Now, one person who I kind of take some of the lessons from about this is Cydia Hartman. I worship at her altar. Mm-hmm. She is like my queen.
1: If you've listened to this many episodes and you haven't heard <laughs> Cydia Hartman? Dr. Banton talk about her. <laughs> oh, my
0: God. I mentioned her like every other episode. <laughs> yes. So, but this particular word, I mean, I've read, you know, I had my students read um, Lose Your Mother <laughs> about her trip to Ghana. I've had my graduate students read Scenes of Subjectivity. But this is about a little essay she wrote called Venus in Two Acts, Mm. which is an essay about archival issues. She uses that to interrogate the ability of the archive to document black life in the Middle Passage. Mm -hmm. And more specifically, what she is talking about or what she is trying to wrestle with is the erasure of black girls and women from public memory of racial violence through an archival encounter with an enslaved black girl who was named Venus on board a slave ship, a British slave ship, named Recovery in 1792. Mm. So think about that. The erasure of black girls from public memory of racial violence. What does it mean for that to be normalized because it is not taken up in the archive as anything maybe spectacular? or anything to remark upon.
1: Right, and it's also easy to dismiss because we're not seeing it or we're not reading about
0: it. Right. So Venus acts for Hartman as a point of reckoning, not just with the corporeal death that the slave ship as this device of death, right, that it enacts upon the enslaved black people, She's also looking at the social death that the archive facilitates in its failure to document black lives. Mm. So Hartman really wants to question the ability of the archive to hold black stories. Can the archive really hold black stories? And not just can it hold black stories, but can it do so without re-victimizing its subjects?
1: Right.
0: How do you account for that death, the death of the body and the death of the memory? And so she then reveals the gaps within the archives of slavery, and then she then go on to try to redress this, redress the violence that puts Venus as just, just the collateral damage. <laughs> She's just part of the collateral damage of the slave economy of the time. Her death is nothing spectacular. It's nothing to be remarked upon.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? You understand when black people say, say her name, or black lives matter. Very powerful, right? Right. So Venus is based on how the archive choose to handle her, right? And in this case, a white archive that has her as property. Right. And then situate her death as a loss. Of property.
1: As if you were to lose a bag of wheat.
0: A bag of wheat, a piece of log, Mm -hmm. right? A piece of mahogany rolled off the ship. Mm -hmm. You know, she's just collateral damage of a slave economy. So in that moment, then, you're coming to terms with the specific precarity that surrounds black womanhood. And Sidia Hartman in Venus in Two Acts is realizing the kind of very painful state of black women's life in public memory. Not just what's happening to them, but how does the public hold up this memory? Again, that's why Black Lives Matter and activists say, say her name. Right. We're not going to allow you to just pass into oblivion. Just go into the void as if you were nothing. So the state of black women's life in public memory, right? And she looks at this as, you know, obviously, as I've been trying to say, is this is one of the things that we're trying to redress in our social justice movements. Another of my favorite scholars um, and Haitian-American anthropologist, Michelle rolfe Troux wrote a book called Silence in the Past. Mm. And that book really deals with history, story, and power. A couple podcasts ago, right, we talked with Obed, Mm -hmm. the Haitian, and we talk about how people understand the age of revolutions to the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the Haitian Revolution is the only revolution where enslaved people overthrew three (laughs) empires and became their own government. Right. And that is not celebrated worldwide as this kind of beacon of democracy. What is more democratic than that?
1: What is more revolutionary than that? What
0: is more radically revolutionary than that in the age of revolutions? Right. Instead, we celebrate Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) all these people who own slaves who wrote a document talking about freedom Uh while they were still owning slaves. But he talked about the power relations that shape the production of history, right, that may lead to the silencing of the past. And he argued that any historical narrative is a particular bundle of silences, And he says that silences enter the process of historical production at four crucial moments. The moment of fact creation. That is when you're making the sources. Mm -hmm. So Venus, right? What does the ship captain write down about Venus? The moment of making the sources. Number two, the moment of fact assembly. The making of the archives. Mm -hmm. Archivists, when they're going around gathering materials, what do they choose to go in this library right. in this museum Smithsonian Crystal Bridges people who they're employing to go out and get artifacts and manuscripts or whatever how do they make those subjective choices who gets brought in and who gets left out three the moment of fact retrieval when you're writing books mm-hmm. you're making narratives so when i when i'm writing my book And I go to the library. (laughs) Do I just go to one section and just pick what I know? Mm -hmm. Or do I encounter a librarian or an archivist who's like, oh, so you're writing about this? Oh, you know that there's this other thing that exists that maybe you didn't see and here it is. So my own subjective experience is going to cause me maybe to exclude certain things as well. Right. Right? And then four, the moment of retrospective significance. And he calls it the moment of history in the final instance. And so he says that the effort to construct and tell histories then must grapple with the various levels of silencing that are intrinsic to the production of history. And he says, insofar as power is constitutive of the story, we can say that silences are inherent in history Because any single event enters history with some of its constituent parts missing. Something is always left out, while something else is recorded. Thus, whatever becomes facts does so with its own inborn absences, specific to its production. Yeah. Think about the Constitution. Right. Is there silences in that? Or the voices of... Native American women, you know, all of those things. And we talk about the power imbalances and how that is reflective of that. And we think about, you know, I always say this very powerful quote by the African writer Chinua Achebe. He says, until lions have their own historian, the tale of the hunt will glorify the hunter. So deconstructing silences, to do that, we must, above all, Think about it as fighting the power that oppresses and silences and building our own. So when we encounter archives, we have to think critically about whose voice is missing from the material that we're accessing and what that means for the historical record as well as for understanding the past. So that is why, Matthew, I am so thrilled to be talking to an expert in this area today, Mm -hmm. Mr. Verlin. Stone. He is a special advisor to Liberia Collection at Indiana University. Um, He's a research associate there in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, and I can personally testify not just to the professional and academic credits of Mr. Stone, but to his general kindness and his gregarious nature. When I was just a graduate student starting my dissertation, I met Mr. Stone And I wasn't feeling very well at that time. And he took, like, the best care of me Mm. at the archive, but also, you know, my health. And I will never forget it. Mm. And so, Mr. Stone, if I haven't said thank you enough, I'd like to publicly thank you, Onir, for all the kindness that you've shown me over the years. Welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you. So we want to get into... Talking about your job that you've done, for how many years, how many years have you been involved in the work of archives?
2: Since the beginning of 2002.
0: So quite some time. How did you get involved in it? Did you study that at the university?
2: No, I was in instructional design and instructional production. But then I worked in Saudi Arabia for a long time. And... It was actually uh, Ruth, my wife, who was an ethnomusicologist, who uh, did a lot of the, well, she wasn't the original collector, but she accumulated a lot of things at the archives of traditional music, because people knew that she was interested in Liberia, and they needed to send it someplace, so it was sent there. And then when uh, Sven Holso found out that he was very ill, he sent his very large collection to Indiana. And that was the beginning of the Liberian collections. Wow. And then we started to expand it. And uh, Elwood Dunn and myself went to Liberia several times and collected papers there. And people donated papers Elwood had uh, deep connections in the Liberian community, the former governance people, and uh, that was that. You were talking in your introductory material, I would argue that some of that's a little more complicated. You didn't say anything I disagreed with, but there are some complications, and I would say, and you know this uh, from historiography, classic historiography makes it almost impossible to address some of these issues. And it has been changing now, for instance. And we find that in the Liberian collections, uh, we have uh, papers uh, that have been collected by, uh, they're the papers of significant Liberian government officials like uh, uh, President Tubman, uh, Father it's etc. And But we also have uh, papers of anthropologists, uh, usually American anthropologists, who have been studying the indigenous people. And those are very, um, that's a different uh, approach to, to how you're going to fill in those uh, blanks sometimes. And... I've had more than one argument with historians that just want to ignore uh, a history. if it's if they can't document it, they don't want to they they don't think they can write about it. I think that I think that's uh, gone by the way, or it's it's going that way, but um, and oral histories have been discovered. that used to be uh, almost a dirty word to some historians.
1: For those of us who, who maybe aren't historians, can you kind of explain the nuance between the difference between taking oral history as kind of an authority compared to written history?
2: Korea, I think you can do that better, Dr. Benton. I think you can do that better than I can.
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are certain... It, again, that's that's a part of how we think about civilizing, right? That right. a lot of these civilizing groups had written records, whereas some of the ethnic groups, um, tribes, racial groups that you might encounter... Um, are storytellers. Africans are storytellers. Griots are significant people in African tradition that pass down history through storytelling. If you think about hip-hop now and Black CNN, right, it's how stories are maintained and that's how stories were kept. Um, Probably similarly in Native American culture. But if the civilizers who are the most powerful in society do not see that as a legitimate Uh, form of uh, documenting um, what has transpired and you have history established as a discipline, it's going to become a part of the the way of doing the discipline to kind of denigrate oral history. Mm -hmm. And it's only now in recent times that oral history— Right. People are now interviewing World War Two soldiers or, you know, Vietnam soldiers because they recognize that the stories of people who are not engaging in the form of literacy and literacy is very broad. (laughs) You know, we're understanding that literacy does not mean that you only read and write. Right. Right. Their literacy means a certain kind of understanding as well. Like if you go in the hood and say, good morning, what's up? (laughs) Like you are illiterate, (laughs) okay? (laughs) There's a way of being in that space that you clearly do not know,
1: yeah.
0: (laughs) And you didn't think it uh, well enough to uh, to try to find out, right? You know. And so that's what I'm talking about, and that that's what Mr. Stone is referencing. That you know that there are historians who don't take oral history seriously, and so. Um, you know uh for an archivist, I imagine that that is something it's a different maybe set of problems, right mr stone
2: yes i would I would toss in uh I can't speak authoritatively about uh Native Americans or uh many other parts of the world, but I would say that the oral histories that you find in many places in Africa are um authentic and accurate uh for a much deeper time scale than the, rather than just taking them as a bunch of old people sitting around spinning yarns.
0: So what what interests you most about that job that you've been involved in since two thousand and three? What like what's what's the most interesting thing in it for you?
2: Well, the thing that gives me the the most uh, pleasure is helping people find what they want and directing them uh, to not just to other sources, but to other people who can help them, and to just to keep my ears open and uh, say, "Oh, well, so-and-so is working on this topic. You should talk to her." and that sort of thing. And uh, this is a book that you might not find very interesting, but the footnotes and the bibliography are great for what you're doing.
0: But I find that because I get emails from you all the time about that, like here's a new work that you might think about, or this person is researching this and you make what I, what you're doing is so important because you're creating community around, People that who are interested in in a certain idea or thing, and so you're unconsciously or maybe consciously creating community, and that's what I love the most about what you do. That perhaps maybe many don't see as specific to your
2: job. Yeah, that that is is something we do, but uh, that is. Uh... I don't know it's that's kind of grown up around uh the Liberian collections but also the Liberian Studies Association and Friends of Liberia there's a lot of sharing and community and part of it is just simply it's a small group of people so it's not hard to know a lot of people and uh there's perhaps a small danger of getting too isolated in in your own small circles but yeah
0: What's the most fascinating collection or special collections project that you've worked on?
2: Well, you would probably—this is a pretty standard, or uh, to speak of the records of the powerful, um, this would fit it. But it was also one of the most interesting, and those were the uh, William B.S. Tubman papers.
0: Can we get, just just for the listeners real quick— just, you know, to let them know who William Tubman is. He was the 19th president of Liberia, and he was the longest-serving president in the country's history. Uh, from, he served from 1944 until
2: 1971. Well, it was a very complex project because these papers didn't end up being in a bunch of boxes that we just picked up and bought back. Indiana. They were uh, on a wet floor in a water uh, log basement. They were, they were up country in, in the Tubman farm. And uh, the soldiers, uh, probably Taylor's soldiers, had gone through thinking that they would find, find something of value in these records, uh, by value meaning money or jewelry. And so they just uh, pulled the stuff out and threw them on the floor. So we had to go when we went over. As I found out later in another project at the National Archives, um, the papers that were up in that, uh, it was at the farm uh, mansion, but that had been turned into a museum. And that's why those stuffed animals were there. And that's why the papers had been there. But they were in terrible shape we had to go through pick them up off the ground and just just pick them up and put them in boxes and we had determined normally what you do in uh archiving when you have damaged materials that are wet you freeze it and then let it it's like freeze drying you and then let it uh, thaw out slowly and the you You can um, preserve the papers uh, pretty well that way. But during the war, because this is in 2004, 2005, and the war was just over in 2003, or not the war, but uh, Taylor's regime. So there was no deep freezing facility there anymore as there had been one time for fish. So we convinced the British Library's Endangered Archives program to give us an exception. We brought the stuff back to, to uh, Bloomington and then went through those drying processes. One other sort of very time-consuming fact, we had to sort through those papers 22 times to get them into the condition, into the organization that they now have because you would find a piece here and a piece there and we developed techniques, et cetera. So it was just an interesting puzzle. And then first of all, they were microfilmed and le- then later they were digitized. And finally they were put up on the internet as uh, the Tubman collection. And that has been a collection that has been uh utilized a lot people have looked into it but it's interesting the kinds of things that people are interested in like there's a philatelic uh, organ the liberian philatelic association and they're only interested in the stuff of the postmaster where they can fill out information about postal rates and that sort of thing that's a very minor example but anyway you never know and you'd ask me earlier what do you like the Be- I like the helping of people, but you also never know when somebody shows up and you think, well, we don't have anything that's going to be able to help you. And then somebody will interrogate a group of documents and they'll find it and they'll say, this is exactly what you, what I wanted. This is exactly what I needed because they were looking at it in a different way from the way we were. We had organized them in very conventional categories, uh, which were basically the, the way the government was organized. You're listening to a podcast produced by KUAF, your public radio station for more than three decades. Hello, I'm Timothy Dennis. KUAF's on-air programming features the latest news from NPR, with shows like All Things Considered, 1A, and Here and Now, locally hosted music programs on the weekend that you won't find online, local newscasts every weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30, updates on events happening throughout the KUAF listening area, and more. To listen, tune your radio to 91.3 FM, visit our website, KUAF.com, or tell your smart speaker to play KUAF.
0: So you work in, I'm sure the story about Tubman's document is a story that has been replicated all over the place. I've spoken to archivists, you know, when I was at Vanderbilt and, you know, other archivists. You know, going to Cuba or going to Colombia or other places where the archive is just strewn all over the place. There's rain and weather elements uh, coming in on papers that people might consider very, very, very important not just to their individual story as a human being, whether it's your birth record or your death record or your marriage record or your land record, right? But to the nation's history as well.
2: Right. Well, you don't have to go to the continent of Africa or to Cuba. Um, I, th- I think it may have even been Dr. Clegg, but they were talking about going to courthouses, et cetera, in um, uh, North Carolina and then the Southern courthouses and you have the, and then of course, uh, after, uh, the hurricane, uh, in new Orleans, then the situation was very similar to what we had the kind of, uh, reconstruction of things. So, yeah, it's a lot of hard work, but it's, it's kind of an interesting puzzle.
0: When you talk about Dr. Clegg talking about going to North Carolina, it's funny how you pick that specific state because activists now went after Carolyn Bryant because they found the original warrant that was issued for Carolyn Bryant after she accused or she was embroiled in the accusation of Emma Till that led to his lynching. That the court, I guess she was never served, and they found it in the courthouse. Right. <laughs> they found it in the basement. <laughs> they found it in the basement of the courthouse. So you can just I can just imagine, you know, what kinds of injustices in terms of archival is happening in court courthouse records and, you know, all of these kinds of things. So to think about Liberia then, right? Even though you're saying we don't have to go that far, we could just go to North Carolina, you know, and all of these places. Liberia has a very interesting history. Um as I imagine with a lot of other places where we see where places that has been in war, like how they've been destroying the monuments now in Ukraine or, you know, in the Middle East or whatnot. But Liberia, when when Liberia had that very protracted civil war, its archives was at the center of it. Would Would you argue that?
2: I wouldn't say it was in the center, but yes, it was the target several times. Okay. Why is that? Well, from what I gathered, uh, I think it was the uh, UNESCO and maybe um, Guinea, interestingly enough, had uh, helped subsidize. They designed and they built the archives that's there now. They built and designed it. And... um, Then, uh, let's see, that would have been either early in, I think it was early in the, um, it was dedicated early in the uh, Doe era. But I don't know if you know this story, but uh, they tried to assassinate Doe. And this car, Doe then put this car in the middle of the archives. There was a courtyard that uh, house this car. And then in 1985, there was a an election that was considered to be crooked. And uh, where Doe had uh, destroyed, uh, it was alleged to have destroyed ballot boxes, etc. And those were supposed to be stored in the archives too. So anyway, when Doe was overthrown, They rushed the archives. They destroyed the car, and they broke into uh, the area where the uh, ballots were supposed to be. I never did hear. I could never get uh, a single story on whether the ballots were actually there or whether they just thought they were. But anyway, they ransacked the whole place. And it's never really that those materials have never quite been the same because, once again, things were strewn all over.
0: So in this kind of, you know, post-Doe, post-Charles Taylor, Liberia Civil War world, right, um, this post-war archival work, you know, where do you and your work fit into this mission that Liberia is doing to not only decolonize archives but also to repatriate depatriate archives where do do you maybe or places like Indiana University what do these things you know mean from your perspective as, as an archivist decolonizing archives repatriating depatriating and so on
2: well in the best of all possible worlds they would uh the government would uh, train some people, send some people out to be trained uh, who could come back and manage those processes themselves. Uh, And money would be invested in preservation, organization, et cetera. And just to take control of those. Right now, nobody's very few people are doing anything with the materials they're not it's not like the benin brasses or the algon marbles which are you know have been removed and are taken were are in england
0: lots of european countries are now embroiled in this very serious discussion about returning african items like as you said the benin brasses that were stolen during war, during the scramble for Africa, during the times when Africa was colonized, right? So lots of these items are being repatriated because the arguments that they've been making is that Africa did not have the facilities, I guess, maybe the museum capabilities or archival capabilities to hold some of these items. And um, I don't know if you, as an archivist, if you did you see Black Panther? Yes. So that part where is in the museum, and he's talking asking where the archivist where they got all the different pieces in the museum, and he was talking about they were stolen from Africa and whatnot, and so now it's it's fascinating that you know Rand Coogler included that in the film because it's it's a big part now of the historical debate, so so
2: you know, that debate's been going on for a long time
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, what's interesting to me is uh, this used to be a theoretical argument. Mm. Uh, I mean, as it impacted on me. And then as time went on, it became more and more impactful uh, on the work we were doing. And now we're in a, uh, we actually still have the Tubman papers here. They're owned by the Tubman family and they should be, and we're obligated uh, by the uh, Endangered Archives Project to send them back, but the family doesn't trust the current government oh. to uh, allow us to take them back. It's a very awkward situation.
0: Oh wow! You guys have to consult with the family about where that those papers are put
2: yeah we, we well they have to agree to receive them and they have not agreed to receive them so right now they're uh they're stored in a very secure and climate controlled uh facility here at Indiana University but that's not where they belong they should be repatriated i would like to uh i don't know split the baby or something and say One of the things that digitization allows us to do is for everybody to have a a chance to look at the materials and the, the originals can be where they should be. Now, you can't do the... At this point, you can't do the same thing with artifacts, but you can with documents. But it's a very... Both processes are very expensive. So we kind of finesse the repatriation thing but again to be able if you've looked at our website or at the university's website with the liberian with the tubman papers and the other collections up that have been digitized that there's a huge it infrastructure behind that at this point we we've worked we've i i've uh explored for the last 15 years ways uh that that these could be made more available and i think they exist but they still cost some money not as much as iu has invested in their big infrastructure but uh, anyway those are the issues there with the the digitization isn't the final answer anyway
1: KUAF is your source for news and entertainment, both on the air and in your podcast feed. With podcasts like Ozarks at Large, Points of Departure, The Lunch Hour, and Undisciplined, you can rely on KUAF to bring you a diverse lineup of culture and news whenever you need it. Find our entire lineup of podcasts at KUAF.com slash podcast. Do you ever feel like a a bit like a parent who is sending off a child to college, perhaps, when, you, when you've had these archives, you've had these artifacts or these documents in your possession for so long, and, and you worry that if you send them away that that they won't make it or that they won't quite be in as good a condition as, as when they were in your, in your hands?
2: Actually, I would say I don't. I it would be a little bit of a hard-nosed parent and say, Well, I just was looking up the Benin brasses and the uh, Elgin marbles the other day just because I thought this might come up, this issue might come up. I don't really share that. I mean, I understand some of the concerns that some of the uh, museum curators in England and Germany, France, et cetera, are making, but that's not really their place to make those things. Send a marble. Back to Greece, they they manage they they've done quite a bit of decent stuff. Send it back to Nigeria, and yes, there are some risks. That some stuff will be misappropriated, but you know it's very pater- it's very paternalistic to say, oh, "Well, we're not going to send those brasses back to you because you just you'll you'll just uh, sell them to." the lowest or to the highest bidder and so in the answer that I would rather get this stuff back to Liberia and let them solve these problems I don't mean dump them on Liberia I'd be glad to help but I don't feel like a parent sending it off
0: ultimately I mean, this memory and this history is so central, especially as a post-war country trying to find its identity, right? Uh, It's so important for a country trying to understand itself. We see the debates that America is having over identity. So it's like it would be kind of a crazy argument for America to argue, to hold on to documents or memorabilia or artifacts that are not theirs, when they're so embroiled in that, you know, debate of memory and history themselves. You know, a uh, 1619 Project, Confederate monuments, all of that is about a country trying to understand itself through its history, its past, and what it has chosen to memorialize.
2: I agree. And I think if, you know, there are certain things maybe Indiana University could do a better job at preserving a certain set of papers. I mean the physical papers. But I've experienced this again and again when I've worked in in the archives with other Liberians uh, who were working and we were sorting things together. They see so many connections and stuff that they know from their own history, from what their grandmothers told them, what their fathers told them. They should be dealing with this, not us. And if we're interested in it, and we should be, then we should travel over there, rent housing, buy food in the restaurants, and, and do the work there in the archives.
0: This has been so wonderful, uh, uh, Mr. Stone. I really appreciate you shedding light on this subject Um, of archives and the powerful role that they play in our society and people understanding themselves and their stories, but also nations understanding themselves and their stories. And for a nation that was colonized, like Liberian, had to go through war where, you know, documents and documented history and important documents like land deeds are, you know, significant uh, for people. Understanding that archives, the process of restoring them, um, you know, you shed quite a bit of light on that. the The efforts nowadays by archivists like yourself to repatriate and depatriate artifacts um, is is one that is fascinating and continues to be so. So. I'd like to very much thank you for coming to the Undisciplined podcast and for, you know, educating um, us on on this very important subject area.
2: Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore. Our show's associate producer is Rachel Bernstein. Thanks so much for listening haven't had a chance yet, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast.